Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping, and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. How many times have you walked out the door and just taken for granted that you'll return safe and sound? How many times have you heard the story of something happening to another person and shuddered just a little thinking it could happen to anyone, but not you, right? Sure, we've all had what we'd consider close calls of one kind or another, but we never think we'll be the lost ones, or rather, the ones murdered in the woods. In the spring of 1981, Robert Mountford Jr. and Laura Suzanne Ramsey planned to hike the Appalachian Trail, aiming to raise money for the mentally ill. It was a noble, well-intentioned, and ambitious endeavor. But Robert and Laura, both 27-year-old social workers, were passionate about mental health and their work. The two had planned and prepared for their grueling hike through the beautiful and picturesque Appalachian Trail, and by all accounts... Everything was going well for them. Robert started his trek in Georgia, while Laura started and joined alongside her hiking companion and colleague in Virginia. The two had planned to meet up with yet another co-worker just north of a town in Giles County called Parisburg, but they never made it to the third member of the team. Not making it to that second meeting place in Parisburg, that was the first sign that something was not right. It was when they didn't make that check stop that the woman who they were meeting called authorities for help. Giles County Sheriff's Office was the first to be contacted and quickly set off onto the trail, walking lengths of it, asking if any of the hikers had seen a lost couple that matched the physical description described to them. It was frustratingly no after no, until investigators finally got a yes. A hiker had indeed seen them. The hiker had seen them near Wapiti Shelter and hiking with an, and I quote, strange-looking man. And then a second hiker reported seeing them. That sighting on May 19th, as far as authorities were concerned, was the last time anyone saw them alive. And it was in a local country store named Trent's. Now, following their lead, investigators made their way to Trent's, where they got another ambiguous and concerning clue. A man said he actually knew what had happened to Robert and Laura, but when inquiries were made into who the man making those claims was, they were informed the man was known as Lying Randall, and that man was certifiably insane. Now, given that the information provided by a man referred to as lying Randall couldn't exactly be considered reliable, well, they just had to widen the search. They continued by checking logbooks at hiking shelters, and through that began to reconstruct their path. 
and it was along the Appalachian Trail, connecting the dots using the logbooks at the hiking shelters, that they found another couple of hikers who once again mentioned having seen the described hikers with a third man. A man with Robert and Laura acting very eerie, and once again around Wapiti Shelter. It took 11 days, but eventually, authorities finally made it to Wapiti Shelter, the last known location of the hiking couple Robert and Laura. At first glance, as they walked around the shelter, nothing seemed out of the ordinary or out of place, but then they simply looked down. A sheriff's deputy looked at the floor of the shelter and noticed a viscous and red liquid. They later came to discover it was Robert Mountford's blood. It appeared there had been a crime at the Wapiti shelter, and investigators were officially becoming worried about the fate of the couple. It seemed obvious that something had happened within the shelter given what they assumed to be blood on the floor of the cabin-like shelter, and as such, investigators began searching the area around the shelter in the woods and ravines. It wasn't far from the shelter's front door, in a small opening in the foliage of the forest, that authorities discovered what appeared to be a small pile of leaves that looked as if they'd been brushed together into a mound. The rest of the story in just a moment. Alright, now back to the tale. Authorities didn't have to dig for very long. Underneath the pile of leaves, conveniently placed, was a buried sleeping bag with the body of Laura Ramsey inside. After that, the investigation heated up. Investigators were keen to hit the ground running. They now had a murder scene, and they needed to discover what they could before the elements destroyed what possible evidence might be laying about unseen or undiscovered. Dogs arrived the next day, including a cadaver dog trained to sniff out the scent of decomposition. But their work was short, as the cadaver dog quickly sniffed and sniffed and then sat down right next to a stump. Upon digging up the spot the cadaver dog had identified, police discovered the second sleeping bag, with Robert Mountford Jr. dead and crammed inside it. Robert and Laura had met tragic ends. What had started as a passionate, altruistic charity hike for mental health had turned into the final walks of both the hikers, and within the peaks of the Appalachian Mountains, away from the support of their family and friends, the two had died, and it was up to police to discover the what, when, and why. The autopsies, as autopsies always are, was illuminating but saddening, through means which I won't detail for you, they were able to surmise that the two had shared a heavy meal that evening before their lives were cut short, and they had also shared a friendly and congenial drink of Bacardi rum after the trials of a long day's hike. Robert was the first to have died. There were no defensive wounds, because Robert was blindsided with a gunshot to the head. Laura, on the other hand, had time to rationalize what had happened, to realize the danger she was in. She fought back valiantly, but to no avail. At some time during her struggle, Laura was struck with an iron bar and then stabbed with both a long nail and a knife. In fact, she was stabbed 13 times 
while she fought for her life. But eventually, the unrelenting attack was too much, and she too fell victim to the assailant at the shelter. After murdering both Robert and Laura, the killer dragged their bodies snug in their sleeping bags out into the night air, and then the killer buried them, hoping his crime would stay hidden and secreted away. But he didn't want them hidden from himself. The killer had buried the bodies in such a way that he could come back to the scene of the crime and visit his victims. He also hid and buried some of their personal belongings. The buried spots, in fact, in relation to where the bodies were buried, resembled and were aligned in some sort of macabre compass. At the scene, police also recovered Laura's camera, but the film was missing. Then they found her backpack, and inside that backpack was a book which she had been reading, and hidden within its pages was a bloody fingerprint, which police would come to find belonged to a man named Randall Smith. Randall Smith, otherwise known as Lying Randall, who had been described by locals as certifiably insane, and who had told authorities he knew what had happened to the hikers, might actually have known after all. Randall Smith lived at 190 Virginia Street, in a home he shared with his mother. It was close enough to the trail to see parts of it from inside the home. That was the first place police began their search for who was now their prime suspect. Authorities began searching the small four-room home and quickly found within the basement a pair of blood-stained jeans and other items owned by Robert and Laura. Amongst those stolen belongings was an odd and sickening arrangement of fringe pornography and homemade sex toys made out of medical instruments. But perhaps the most odd of all was a note found in Randall's handwriting that said, kidnapped by two people and was going to be killed. Authorities certainly weren't convinced with this thin plea of innocence. They weren't searching for a victim. They were searching for a sick and perverted killer. But it wouldn't be a simple manhunt. In fact, it lingered into June. Police searched the trail, which had been closed for a period, searched everywhere he might have lingered, or places he was reported to have visited frequently. But police eventually did catch up with Randall Smith, in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, of all places. Police apprehended the man who fit the description, but the man which police had in custody also claimed to have amnesia and couldn't confirm or deny if he was indeed Randall. But as soon as the Giles County Sheriff Deputy was able to lay eyes on the man, he knew that it was Randall Smith, who they'd been looking so hard for. But making sure they'd crossed their T's and dotted their I's, police were quick to tell Randall Smith that he had serious wounds that would need medical attention, and that required signing forms. Of course, this was just a ploy for Randall to confirm his identity for them. Without thinking, Randall scratched his name, his real name, on the piece of paper giving himself up. I don't want to talk about it. That's all Randall Lee Smith would say when questioned about the double murder after being extradited back to Virginia. He had done it. He just didn't want to speak about it. Whether or not he wanted to speak about his crimes, though, police had more than enough evidence in their case built against him. And with all of that arranged, Randall was charged with two counts of murder. 
Of course, there was no sympathy from the community, as is seen sometimes where locals feel as if one of their own is wrongfully persecuted. No, in this instance, locals and hikers both called for a harsh punishment for the man known as Lying Randall. The trial date was quickly set, and the shark circled as there was blood in the water. Whether that's right or not, the community wanted to see blood. They wanted the death penalty. Only that, in the eyes of many, would be justice. Instead, though, the district attorney accepted a plea bargain from Randall Smith and his defense. In exchange for pleading guilty to two counts of second-degree murder, the prosecution would forego seeking a first-degree murder charge, which would have carried the maximum penalty of a death sentence. Unlike the public at large, the families of the victims pitied Randall in a sense. They were angry and grieving, but they extended a modicum of empathy, or at least enough to pity him. They didn't want Randall to receive the death penalty, and accepted the plea deal. Now, Randall had no friends, no girlfriends, no meaningful connections of any sort. In fact, it seemed he really didn't have a life at all. As far as anyone knew, his life, or his identity, existed solely within his own lies. The distant girlfriends, the friends that never seemed to be around the lavish homes sprinkled across the country, and his children that he never had. Regardless of how the family felt about Randall, about the plea deal and their opposition to the death penalty, authorities and the community at large didn't agree with them. They wanted Randall gone for good, not just locked away. But according to the district attorney, the evidence that police had gathered provided a weak case. There was no motive to speak of, and a plea bargain in their eyes was good enough. What they really meant to say, though, was some justice is better than possibly no justice at all. As is often the case, these crimes, these deplorable, horrible crimes, well, they don't end with the people being murdered or vanished into thin air. There's the family, the friends, and whether it's right or fair, there's the community that feels violated, and in part feel ownership in the same way a family or friend would. When it's too close to home, emotions are elevated. This was seen in full force, when the community and hikers of the Appalachian Trail picked the courthouse and made their opinions known when they failed to re-elect the district attorney in charge of the Randall Smith case. But at the end of the day, when it was all said and done, for the murder of Robert Mountford Jr. and Laura Ramsey, Randall received 30 years in prison, which he would only serve 15 of. And for 15 years, Randall only received a visitor once, and it was his mother. Not a single other person in the entire world missed him. Now, there are rumors that his mother visited him twice, in fact, but I can assure you, that's just a rumor. That brings us to the end of this tale of true crime. But before I let you creeps go, to continue on in your lives for the weekend, I'm sure waiting with bated breath for the next episode. I'd like to say something to you. Thank you. Thank you for 100,000 downloads. Thank you for your constant support. Thank you for the wonderful conversation in our Facebook group. Thank you for all your five-star reviews, and just thank you for listening and hanging out with me in my mother's basement. Thank you. 
so creeps. That brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash talesbycole, where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every five-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors. (laughs) 